This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Looking for a website with news and information that you can trust? A website that has you in mind? At TheBlaze.com, you'll find just that. TheBlaze.com is filled with the news and the information you care about. You'll find articles about faith, business, technology, entertainment, and a whole lot more. You deserve high-quality, reliable information, so there's no reason to settle for anything less. Check out TheBlaze.com and bookmark it today. TheBlaze.com. Want the inside track on everything happening in the world of Glenn Beck? Sign up for Glenn's free newsletter and get today's top stories emailed to you every day. You'll get show recaps from radio, video highlights from the Blaze TV, and unique insight on the stories that matter most to Glenn. You'll also get breaking news alerts and much more. Visit glennbeck.com newsletter and sign up today. Get informed and stay informed with the Glenn Beck newsletter. Visit glennbeck.com newsletter. Stupid internet stuff. Huh. Click here for free. Oh, I got a virus. Smart internet stuff. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. Now, spreading freedom across the nation. This is. The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome to our three here in the Freedom Hut. We are joined by our own Dr. Lee. She's an assistant professor of nutrition sciences at Baylor University. Before coming to Baylor, Dr. Lee received her master's degree in exercise and sports from the Texas Women's University. She went on to obtain a Ph.D. in molecular carcinogenesis at University of Texas and MD Anderson Cancer Center. She has an MS, a PhD, and an MPH. What's up with that, everybody? Loving it. Dr. Lee, thanks for calling in. Thanks for having me on, Buck. All right. You're going to tell me a bit about bacteria as a means of fighting HIV. This is fascinating. I don't really understand it, but you do. So explain, please, Dr. Lee. Sure. This is one of my favorite topics, as I think you know. Um, Just to make clear for the audience, I am not a microbiologist. I am a cancer biologist. So um, I just want to put that one caveat out there. And some of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about today is maybe a little bit PG-13. So just remember that for the audience. Um, So with HIV, when when I first heard about this, it was probably back in 2013 or 2014 when I was at the National Cancer Institute doing my postdoc. And uh, there was a a woman in the audience from a startup tech company, and um, she was talking about a new device to deliver anti-HIV drugs. And what she talked about was taking bacteria that normally live in a woman's vagina, uh, lactobacillus, which is normally there. It's very protective, keeps the pH correct. And what they were able to do is take a gene and insert it into the bacteria's own DNA 
So now this gene called cyanovirin is actually inactivating HIV by binding to it and preventing the viral particles from attaching to the mucosa in the vagina. So what it does is it prevents the transmission of HIV. So they've only tested this so far in non-human primates, but now they're moving into phase one trials in females. And what's so exciting about this to me especially is the ability to help those women in Africa because that's where HIV is so prominent. And along certain corridors um, in African countries, you have um, stops and there is a prevalence of high HIV transmission. And the ability to provide doses of a cream that a female could apply um, to keep her from having HIV transmission would be an amazing new drug for these people because I think it would be fairly cheap and easy to administer because it would be the woman who would be administering it herself. And the other really great thing about this formulation is not only does it um, have this uh, gene that it expresses to prevent HIV transmission, it also is expressing other proteins that help repair um, the mucosa and prevent transmission by itself. So this could be a, a, a fantastic new uh, weapon in the arsenal against the spread of HIV. In the article that I saw that you, you shared with me, they talked a bit about pro, probiotics, good bacteria 2.0. Uh, are, are there applications for I've also seen the uh, report from Vice News on using a virus to fight HIV. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, too. But it seems now that there's a whole new field of microbiology that is used to sort of fight microbiology is that and this is this is opening up and people are seeing there's this entirely new world of fighting disease with it yeah absolutely this has been around for you know probably over 100 years now we've, we've all also known that we can use viruses or bacteria to fight other viruses or other bacteria because uh, bacteria secrete their own um, antimicrobial proteins to fight off other viruses or other microbes. One of the brand new um, devices that we use now in molecular biology to shut down genes um, is called CRISPR. So CRISPR is a way that bacteria normally fight off um, foreign entities from killing them. And so we've been able to use this new technique in our own um, uh, molecular biology, our own labs, to shut off genes, and it has potential for therapeutics as well. And so what they're now doing, for example, with poliovirus, they're now using an attenuated poliovirus that they can deliver directly into solid tumors. Mainly it's for glioblastoma, so brain cancer. And what this does is it causes an immune reaction in the body, and it makes their, uh, your own immune cells target those tumors and destroy the tumor. So we're using this in all sorts of ways to kill viruses and to kill bacteria. Just as a, as a general question, you mentioned that using bacteria in this way uh, as a as a protective mechanism for women or a, a way of reducing uh, the risk of, of HIV transmission dur during intercourse, um, that that's going through the, the phase, what is it, it's entering phase one and the, the clinical trial process, what, it's phase one, two, and three. Correct. Uh, is, is that, is there a way to, should that be reformed? I mean, if, if I had... President Trump's ear, and I could get him and the the uh, head of HHS to sit down for a second, and the FDA maybe, 
uh, is is this process too slow? Is it because we're too litigious as a society? It feels like there are these exciting scientific discoveries, but it just takes forever for new therapies to get to market. Or is that just my perception as an outsider? I mean, what, what's the truth? No, no, the truth is it definitely needs to be reformed. I'm not an expert in the details of how it should be reformed, but yeah, you're right. It is is too slow, but they're starting to ramp up new ways of getting these drugs to people faster that are in desperate need, specifically late-stage cancer patients. So they're doing what they now call accelerated um, uh, trials for drugs. So if they find something like this polio, attenuated polio virus for glioblastoma, they accelerate that now, and it can be um, accelerated into patients that actually need it without being on clinical trial. So they are actually doing some more um, uh, new new ways to accelerate these drugs into the clinic without having to go through all three phases. But yeah, they're definitely they're working on that very hard right now to. Um, change the way clinical trials are um, are done in the future. Do you think that we'll reach a point in the next ten years when, at least in the in the developed world, and then that will clearly have an effect, uh, sort of a, a downstream effect for the for the developing world, where HIV is is largely at least the spread of it is eradicated, or do you think that there'll be a cure first, or what 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 will be the first? What would you either assess or guess? I don't know how far out I'm asking you to to push here will be the, the, the big breakthrough when it comes to HIV and, and maybe even with cancer, too. Um, I think what, I, what I'm hoping for is that we'll prevent the transmission. So we'll prevent the spread, and I don't think it'll ever be eradicated, but I think um, somewhere similar to uh, polio, smallpox, and um, some of those diseases like that um, will actually we'll get it down to such a minimal number that it won't be an important problem anymore because we have either a vaccine or, or something that prevents the transmission of it. And let me ask you, uh, I know your, your laboratory does research on the relationship between diet, obesity, and the microbiome. Mm-hmm. What can you, we're we're going to have uh, Gary Talbot, who's a journalist who does a lot of work on, uh, he wrote a book, What Makes what Really Makes You Fat, and he's also going to come on to talk to us about sugar in just a little bit here. We're doing a lot of health on today's show for whatever reason. It's like high school health class on the Buck Sexton Show. Um, but there is uh, the relationship between obesity and the microbiome. What, what can you just tell us about that? That just sounds like an interesting connection. Yeah, so I got really interested in this um, probably back in 2006 when um, – uh, one of my um, all-time favorite scientists came out. Um, he was talking about taking um, uh, uh, the feces from a human that was obese and transferring it into um, a lean mouse um, that didn't have any of its own microbes, none of its own gut flora. And he was able to make this mouse obese. And I just thought that was such a fascinating idea and such a paradigm shift from what I had normally thought about. And so they've since then been doing a lot of studies looking at whether or not um, you can determine or classify somebody as obese just by looking at their microbiota. So there's been a lot of um, promotion uh, in, in studies about this and showing that, that you can. However, it's not as cut and dry as we had hoped to be. Um, it's not as strong of a predictor of obesity. The microbiota isn't. But there's a lot of really interesting things that we're still looking at. For example, in my lab, we're looking at um, whether or not somebody's um, gut bacteria, their microbes, are actually um, different in people who are obese. And if, if that's their, one of the reasons that's increasing your risk for colon cancer, because we know that um, depending on what type of microbes you have 
or if you have biofilm formation from these microbes living in your gut, it can increase your risk for colon cancer. So we're looking to, to answer that question whether these microbes in people who are obese are secreting factors that are mutating cells and increasing the risk for different types of cancer, so specifically colon cancer. All right. Interesting stuff. Uh, Dr. Lee Greathouse is an assistant professor of nutrition science at Baylor University. She is at KL Greathouse on Twitter. She is Team Buck Squad. Dr. Lee, great to have you. Thank you so much for calling in today. Thanks, Buck. Give the hubs a high five. Tell them I said hi. Will do. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, 888-900-3393, team. We'll be back right after the break. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. This is the Buck Sexton Show. So, team, I mentioned that Loretta Lynch, I asked Emily Zanotti about this before from Heat Street. Loretta Lynch spoke today, uh, gave a press conference, and part of that press conference was devoted to the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division's findings with regard to the Chicago police force. And keep in mind, we had Emily on talking about Southside, West Side of Chicago, Gang war zones, over 3,000 shootings, okay? Let's call it close to 10 shootings a day, maybe eight or nine a day. A lot of shootings. Uh, Over 700 murders in the city of Chicago, which is about 2 million people, a quarter the size of New York City. New York City has 8 million people and had, I think, between two and 300 murders. So just to give you a sense of, difference in the violence in two major U.S. cities. Chicago, 2 million people, 700 murders plus. New York City, 8 million people, four times the size and less than half the murders. So there we If Chicago were the size of New York City, Chicago would have had 3,000 murders roughly. Uh, you know, it's 4X, call it 2,800 and change. Almost 3,000 murders. That's a lot for one city. That's a lot of people being killed. And as we know, you read these horrific stories about you know, a, a child shot sleeping in bed at night, an elderly person uh, or, you know, has been shot on their front porch, or somebody else who's just walking to school, a young, a young person, a teenager, paralyzed for life. I mean, these are the stories you're reading about Chicago and you'd think it would be a an emergency and the federal government would say, how can we devote more police resources to this? What can we do to stop the violence? What can we do to be proactive? This administration's version of being proactive, given the war zone that Chicago currently is, the administration's version is to 
have the Justice Department, Loretta Lynch, and the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, which is hopelessly politicized at this point, as we know, to come out and tackle the problem from its root, in their opinion, the cops. That's the problem in Chicago, the cops. Here's Loretta Lynch today speaking on this issue. Play it. That the Chicago Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of use of excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. Our investigation found that this pattern or practice is in no small part the result of severely deficient training procedures and accountability systems. Now, as my colleagues will explain in greater detail, CPT does not give its officers the training they need to do their jobs safely, effectively, and lawfully. It fails to properly collect and analyze data, including data on misconduct complaints and training deficiencies. And it does not adequately review use of force incidents to determine whether force was appropriate or lawful, or whether the use of force could have been avoided altogether. All of these issues are compounded by poor supervision and oversight, leading to low officer morale and an erosion in officer accountability. You know what leads to low officer morale? The Attorney General of the United States coming out and saying that there is a systemic problem of violence, lack of accountability, lack of training, and lack of procedures in a police department that is for one of the largest cities in the country. That, that I think, hurts morale. If you're, if you're a Chicago Police Department CPD officer, and you've got Loretta, and you are working in one of these areas of Chicago because it's very segmented, right? There are only some parts of Chicago that have this violence going on. You hear that you're, you're out there taking real risks. You've got uh, gangbangers who are shooting at each other and hitting innocent people, and and you're out there trying to stop this. And Loretta Lynch is going to come in and lecture on lack of accountability and use of force. Uh, and, and I know that you're going to get uh, social justice warriors posing as journalists at places like HuffPost and elsewhere. And, yeah, the, there, are, there are going to be some stories of cops doing bad things. Of course. Those exist in every city. There are, there are stories when, when you get to a large enough number of individuals in any profession, there are troubling stories of misconduct. And, and I understand police deal with life and death. So it's but. Look at the military. There, there are going to be some people in the military in any country, anywhere in the world who go bad, are rogue. That will happen. And people say, oh, Buck, well, are we not supposed to report on it? Not supposed to know about it? No, it's not what I'm saying. I do think it's interesting that in the waning days of the Obama presidency, one of the last things Loretta Lynch is doing, given all the murders, all the bloodshed in Chicago, is just put a just a big slap across the face of the Chicago Police Department because that's what they need. Let's put a bunch of let's put a bunch of federal bureaucrats in charge of police procedure in Chicago. Let's have federal accountability to DOJ and the Civil Rights Division because they know how to do street policing in Chicago. They know better than the beat cops there. They have a better sense of what's going on and what they're dealing with day in and day out. It's a question of degree and focus. Police brutality is bad. There's no pro-police brutality constituency in this country. It doesn't exist. It's a myth of the left. 
that people don't care about police brutality. I've had negative interactions with cops. Everybody I know at some point or other has been harassed or annoyed with a police officer and maybe feel like there was some misconduct, there was some bias, there was some problem. Whether it was watching female members of my family get handled by the TSA and not being able to do a thing about it, we've all had our moments, right? We're aware of this, and we don't think this is cool or okay. But when you have over 700 people murdered and over 3,000 shootings, in, in one city in the United States, a city that is the hometown, sort of adopted hometown of the outgoing president, you'd think that the emergency, you'd think the DOJ's focus would be how do we stop people from being killed in this city? But no, the focus is that police are not accountable enough. That's, what that's the solution. Let's point a finger at cops. They're not the ones shooting all these people. Very, very few police-involved shootings in Chicago. But let's talk about the cops and their misconduct. This is so damaging and so destructive. What what, what would I think if I lived in in one of these parts of Chicago where these uh, shootings are constantly happening? And this is what they're... The police are already afraid to do their jobs now because of the Ferguson effect, which you talked about yesterday. You think think they're going to want to really roll up their sleeves and get into it now to serve and protect the streets of Chicago? No, they're just going to hope they don't get called a racist and brought up on federal civil rights charges. A disgrace. Loretta Lynch, absolute disgrace. It's just appalling. Uh, I know it's not really Friday fair, my friends, but I got a little fired up about that one for a second. We got a very interesting guest coming up. Don't go anywhere, team. Much more. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by Gary Taubes. He is the co-founder and senior scientific advisor of the Nutrition Science Initiative. He's an award-winning science and health journalist. He's the author of Why We Get Fat and also a new book out that we're going to talk about now, The Case Against Sugar. Gary, thanks so much for calling in. Well, thanks for having me. Sugar. It's bad in some cases. Tell us why. Okay, well, um, the conventional thinking for like a century is sugar is just empty calories. You consume too much of it. You could, you know, you could balance it by exercise. You could burn it off. I'm making an argument in this book that sugar is a fundamental cause of a condition called insulin resistance, which means it causes obesity, it causes diabetes, it causes heart disease, it may even cause cancer and Alzheimer's, and I realize that sounds quackish, but the science is there to back it up. Can you walk us through some of that, some of that science? I mean, I've, I have to tell you, from my own personal experience, I've always found if, if I want to just drop weight without trying too hard, whether I'm working out a lot or not, Getting, getting rid of any excess sugar in the diet seems like a very effective thing in my own personal experience, but you're saying it's a lot more than just that. You brought up a, some very serious diseases there. You say sugar is directly tied to it. What's the science on that? 
Well, so there's there's two aspects. First of all, you know, we have these obesity and diabetes epidemics worldwide, and I mean they're they're in some cases almost unimaginable. Like in the U.S., diabetes uh, prevalence has increased 650 percent since the 1950s. I mean, if this was a, an infectious disease, if this was, you know, we would have investigative committees and, and think tanks and every other scientist in the world would be trying to figure out what was going on. Um, then these epidemics happen everywhere. So everywhere that a, a population transitions to eating sort of a Western diet, they, you see obesity and diabetes explode, and then you get these other diseases that associate with it, like heart disease. And it turns out that all these diseases are very intimately related to this condition called insulin resistance. So insulin is the hormone that we think of as being defective in diabetes as it is, but in, in the common form of diabetes, type 2, it's your resistant to insulin. It means you have to secrete too much insulin to take care of rising blood sugar. And this insulin resistance problem seems to start in the liver. And as it turns out, sugar is uh, half a molecule of glucose and half a molecule of fructose, and we metabolize that fructose in the liver. And as far back as the 1960s, there were a lot of investigations saying, that, look, it looks like when you give animals and humans sugar, you begin to cause this insulin-resistant condition. So you've got an effect, if you would think of it as a criminal case, so the crime being committed are these epidemics of obesity and diabetes, and you've got sugar at the scene of the crime every time it happens. You've got sugar at the scene of the crime in the body every time it happens. And they, oh, there's, there's not quite a smoking gun. So the way I say it, you know, is if I was a criminal, a prosecuting attorney, I could definitely get an indictment. I don't know if I could get a conviction, but you know, I wrote the book so that people understand sort of what the stakes are, what the case is, and they can make the decision for themselves what they want to do about it. Now, my, my CrossFit friends always talk about fructose versus uh, sugar or uh, what, sucrose? I mean, but the fructose yeah, is being well, not – I'm sorry, sucrose yeah. is – go ahead. Yeah, sucrose is sugar. So sucrose is half glucose. Glucose is the stuff, you know, when you can, when you eat a potato or bread, it breaks down into glucose. It goes into your bloodstream, and your blood sugar goes up, and your blood sugar is also, for all intents and purposes, glucose. But sugar, sucrose, is half fructose and half glucose. And that fructose is metabolized in the liver. It doesn't get into your bloodstream directly. And so, they, like, so, what you get from fruit is different than what you get from a jelly donut. Is what I'm trying. This is what they always tell me, but I, I wanted you to kind of explain. Does well, that make dose, a big difference? Yeah. Toxicologists like to say the dose makes the poison. So there's a little bit of fructose, and anything that tastes even a little bit sweet, you know, any uh, vegetable or fruit has got fructose in it, but at relatively low doses. So then, what we do is we take you know, plants that have it in at relatively high doses to begin with, sugar cane and beet sugar or corn, and you basically, you know, refine it down just like you can find cocaine in, in coca leaves at that, you know, uh, the, the populations in the upper Andes chew for energy, but then you refine it down into a white powder and it's a very intense high. So that's in effect what we've done with sugar from sugar cane and beet sugar. So you end up with this white sugar and you end up with a, when you drink it, so you eat an apple, it you know, might be 10 or 20% fructose. And, um, it might take you half an hour to eat the apple and digest it, but you could get 
five times as much sugar and fructose in a glass of apple juice or four times as much that you could drink in, you know, 20 seconds if you wanted to. And that sort of dumps this stuff in your bloodstream and on your liver in a way that your circulation and your pancreas and your liver never evolved to handle. And so that's that's sort of the fundamental argument, that we've turned it into a form that we could consume in such quantities and so quickly that our body can't handle it and our body responds with this insulin resistance phenomenon. And once you're there, you're accumulating fat, you're becoming diabetic, you're getting, you know, all the disorders that go with heart disease. And it turns out that even uh, cancer and Alzheimer's uh, have the major roles played by insulin. And, and if you're becoming insulin resistant, you can argue, and I do, and I realize that I'm scaremongering on some level, but you could argue that uh, there's, that sugar is playing a, a significant dietary role in driving those diseases as well. How much of a role do genetics uh, play in, in this whole process of the development of insulin resistance, or does it seem pretty consistent that people reach a certain level, a certain consistency of sugar in the diet, and then they will have these problems? No, genetics clearly plays a large role um, in that clearly a lot of people, if, if it's the sugar, a lot of people clearly can tolerate it. So. I mean, you could think of it this way, is um, if you take a population that's never smoked cigarettes before and you convince them all to smoke cigarettes, like 90% of them are not going to get cancer. And there might be some genetic reason why they're protected from the carcinogens in the, in the tobacco smoke, but 10% are. And it's those 10% who you're going to say, you know, that cigarettes cause lung cancer in them. And you'd have the same idea basically with sugar. We have these uh, obesity and diabetes epidemics all around the world and in all kinds of different human genotypes, you know, Inuit and the Arctic and uh, the Maasai, like pastoral populations in Africa and South Pacific Islanders and Middle Easterners and Europeans. And, you know, you pick it. You had something having to do with the Western diet and some percentage of them end up becoming obese and diabetic. And those are the ones who are genetically vulnerable and the others are the ones who are genetically predisposed. If you have a family where everyone's tall and lean and lives to be 90, if I'm right, then they are genetically protected from, you know, they can tolerate the sugar because they have some genetic advantage that the rest of us don't. And so people that tend to, uh, people that, that uh, eat a lot of sugar, I mean, what's how, how large a role do you think sugar is? You're talking about the global obesity epidemic. You think this is the the prime mover of that, right? That's what a lot of your research has led you to, or or what what yeah, is no, the I'm prime mover? I'm arguing primarily diabetes. I think if sugar didn't exist, diabetes would be a. In the same way, if cigarettes didn't exist, cancer would be a very rare disease, and it was before cigarettes. If sugar didn't exist, diabetes would well, be lung a very cancer. rare disease. Lung cancer, yes, thank you. Um, obesity, clearly there are other compounds that also cause obesity, liquid carbs like beer, for instance. I had a fellow write to me saying, you know, what's the deal with liquid carbs? And I said, well, I could write a book called The Case Against Beer, but I don't know if anyone would care. Um, so <laughs> some people might be mad at you just for writing it. What do you the, the yeah. people listening to this right now, Gary, based on all the research you've done uh, on this subject, both of, of what causes uh, what call, the real causes of obesity, the sort of biochemical causes of it. And then in your new book, which is out now, The Case Against Sugar, which everyone can go on Amazon and read about it and check it out. Uh, what do you recommend people do? What, what are your recommendations? Well, 
Clearly, I think that if you really are concerned about a healthy diet, the first thing to do is to cut back on the sugar. Um, you know, whether you're going to get rid of it entirely is just a kind of judgment call that everyone's going to have to make. And I wrote the book so, you know, I could educate people to what the stakes are, what the argument is, and they could decide, is this something that I want to live without? You know, a reasonable argument can be made that sugar is addictive. I mean, if you have kids, you probably don't even have to read any scientific papers to decide. A lot of us find it easier to eat no sugar at all than to try and eat it in moderation or no added sugar at all. So, and I have to apologize, by the way, I'm making this call from the you know, University of Pennsylvania Medical Center, and that's one of those helicopters bringing in a patient in the background. Oh, um, no, it's all right. I do the show from New York City, and we get emergency vehicles here all the time, so, uh, so yeah. we're, we're used to that. Uh, but so anyway, uh, Gary, I, where should everybody where should everybody go for the book? Amazon and bookstores, and also you have a website, Amazon, right? Bookstores, independent bookstores. I have a website, GaryTalbs dot com. Um, you know, I, I'm I. If people are concerned about the sugar in the diet, I think that I, I wanted to 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 set the the sort of argument straight. Uh, I hope I did a good job doing it, and uh, I. I I think, uh, you know, people people would find it a good read. Gary Taubes, author of The Case Against Sugar. Great to have you, sir. Thanks for making the time for us. Okay. Thank you. Team, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We will be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. No, in Virginia, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, Shields High. Shields High. Hey, I have a quote, uh, quote for you, movie quote. All right. Those glasses, you're, those glasses you're wearing make you stand out like a turd in a punch bowl. Oh, look, somebody put a turd in the punch bowl. I mean, it's a funny quote. What's it from? You got me. We got to get the buzzer back here. Uh, Mad Magazine, Up the Academy. Is that an action movie? No, no, it was a funny movie with Ralph Macchio. It was like his first movie. <laughs> what, what, what is it? Well, why are my why are my rules of the game so unclear, Noel? Action movie quote Friday. I love this. What is Why are people calling in with not action movie quotes? I mean, we could do comedy quote Thursday, but if it's action movie quote, Noel, this is not nom. There are rules. <laughs> All right. All right, buddy. I'm just that's a big Lebowski quote for those of you who don't know that. But anyway, all right, Noel. Anything else in your mind before we head off for the weekend? Does Friday the 13th uh, scare you? Nah, it doesn't bother me a bit. All right, man. Rock and roll. Thanks for calling in from Virginia. Shields high, buddy. Uh, I mean, action movies. I feel like I should sit here and just list. You know, just think of the think of the various. Uh, people that are in the, the different actors that are in the Expendables movies, which I understand are terrible movies, but yeah, yeah although that those are action movie heroes, like that's what we're looking. We're looking for quotes from movies that those individuals have starred in, and and some others too. Uh, and really, we're talking eighties and nineties here, folks, uh, or I guess some recent ones too. Uh, anyway, I watched some of uh, John Wick last night. I was I was with uh, Miss Molly, and John Wick was on. 
And I, that's one of those movies that I find it uh, watchable, but it makes it doesn't really make much sense, and it's sort of all ridiculous, but it's somehow also still very watchable, which I feel like Keanu Reeves excels in that area. Point Break also doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, it's completely preposterous, although it is so much better than the Point Break remake that I sort of watch because it's on HBO now or one of those on-demand channels now. Uh, and it was just an unwatchable pile of garbage that didn't even seem to, the, the remake. The original Point Break is is bad in a good way. Uh, it's a very I, I still think it's really fun to watch. Patrick Swayze is very compelling as the as the bad guy, uh, and Keanu Reeves is sort of in his surfer '90s surfer prime. Um, but yeah, I was I found out that there's they're remaking the John Wick. Not remaking. I'm sorry. There's a sequel coming out for the John. Wick movie, which I might I might go check it out just so I can pick up maybe more tidbits for my Russian accent because in the first one it's all Russian mafia guys that he's fighting and, and shooting. Uh, all right, there's that. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Monday. By the way, we do have a live show. It's Martin Luther King Day, uh, but we have a live show, so uh, don't think that I am off and we will not be assembling in the Freedom Hut. In fact. I'm hoping all of you will be able to join. Those of you who are listening even on podcast, maybe you can join live if you have the day off, and maybe you can call in. It'd be kind of fun. 888-900-3393, in case I haven't said that number enough today. I've said it a lot. It just sort of becomes habit, so yeah, that happens. And then next week we have uh, the inauguration to talk about coming up on Friday. Next week is going to be a big week. We are in the final days of the Obama administration. You know, you may have some stuff going on in your life. It's a little tough right now. You may have some challenges. There's some things that we all have that we wish were different or that are bothering us. At least we no longer will have to sit through another Obama speech, which is just another condescending lecture from the left. That's going to be over with real soon. It's pretty exciting. The eight years of Obama, it has felt like an eternity. They are coming to an end. And we will have to see what happens with the Trump administration. I am hopeful, but I am on guard, my friends. That's the best way that I can put it right now. Uh, so let me know about your uh, thoughts on the show today. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I'll be with you Monday and every day next week live from the Freedom Hut. Until then, my, uh, my colleagues, my comrades, my compatriots, fellow patriots, no matter what comes your way, have a fantastic weekend. And always, shields high. Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.